Welcome to Entry Denied, a podcast on U.S. immigration policy in the era of Donald Trump. I'm Alex Alenikoff, director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York City. And I'm Deb Amos. I'm a correspondent for National Public Radio. I report on immigration. In this episode, we look at Donald Trump's war on asylum, the relentless actions of this administration to stop the arrival of asylum seekers from Central America on the southwest border. First, we talk to Jonathan Blitzer, a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine. He's done extensive coverage of Central America and the Trump immigration policies. And then we're going to hear from people on the ground, two asylum seekers who got to the U.S. border, and they've been stuck there for a year. So let's pick up the story with journalist John Blitzer. John Blitzer, thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So describe the situation at the border when Trump comes into office. At the end of the Obama administration, what you had was a situation that was starting to get a little bit worse at the southern border. The numbers were starting to pick up. But when Obama leaves office, I don't think anyone is particularly concerned about what's happening at the southern border, even though, of course, Trump is talking about it constantly. For him, it's essentially rhetorical. So during the campaign, Trump is talking about building a wall to keep Mexicans out. But the numbers that are drifting up here are not arrivals of undocumented Mexican migrants, right? It's mainly Central Americans. That's right. I mean, for the last 10 years, the real story of the southern border has been the arrival of Central American families. Um, So, you know, families from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, who are coming to the U.S. to seek asylum. A much more complicated population to deal with administratively on the U.S. side, because these are people who are seeking asylum, who have legal claims that have to be heard. uh, Whereas in the past, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the profile of the person who was crossing the border, the most common profile, was that of uh, a single Mexican male crossing the border to work, generally in, in a kind of seasonal way before crossing back into Mexico. Uh, the U.S. government had built up all of these policies for dealing with that population. But over the last 10 years, what had really, what's really started to change is who's arriving, and it's these families from Central America. As the number of Central Americans coming to the U.S. increases, they begin to form into what became known in the press as caravans, which Trump then said was an invading army coming full of terrorists and people with diseases and criminals. Who were in these caravans? Why did they form? The formation of caravans or large groups of migrants wasn't a new phenomenon by the start of the Trump era, but certainly it wasn't a common or or kind of generalized phenomenon. For the most part, over the years, when people have tried to move through Central America en route to the U.S., and particularly through Mexico, it's always been safer to travel in numbers just because of all of the dangers of making the trip. But what starts to happen in, I would say, early 2018, and that first arrives on everyone's radar in around April of 2018, is the formation of caravans that are about 1,000 people large, which is significant. And primarily, these are people from Honduras fleeing together, moving through Guatemala and eventually Mexico, and aiming to arrive at the U.S. southern border. When the first of these major caravans starts to materialize in essentially April of 2018 from Honduras, the president finds out about it through Fox News. Well, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. A caravan of more than a thousand Central Americans. We're dealing with a thousand essentially families, people who are making the trip on foot together 
from Honduras to the U.S. And before they're even fully into Guatemala, the president is starting to talk about them. At this very moment, large, well-organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern border. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. I mean, they're over a thousand miles away from the U.S. And the president is already starting to fulminate on Twitter and in public statements about the failure of the Mexican government to stop them, the failure of the the Honduran government to keep them in, in Honduras, the failure of the Democrats to articulate a strong border policy. I mean, he's ranting and raving in his usual mode, but what that actually did in the region was it generated a huge amount of attention for these caravans. And so as the president of the United States is talking incessantly about these caravans heading north, people in the region are starting to hear about the caravans in their own country in some instances through local news. It becomes a major media event. And as more and more people start to hear about the formation of these caravans, and as the president clearly acknowledges their seriousness and their reality, people start to join up. And so he actually starts by virtue of just paying so much attention to these groups early on in their formation, he ends up sort of doing publicity for them. And the difficulty for the U.S. asylum system is that most of the people coming, unlike the undocumented Mexican workers of earlier decades, most of these people would apply for asylum and that would require that they stay in the United States while that claim is being adjudicated. That's right. And around that time, the numbers of apprehensions at the southern border are creeping up. Um, they're still not at levels that are particularly worrisome, but the president almost takes it personally that the numbers of apprehensions are increasing at the border, obviously because he's defined himself politically as someone who is going to scare the hell out of anyone who wants to head north. Yeah, because he expected the numbers to keep going down, down, down because of his tough talk and his tough policies. That's right. Right. So the administration tries a number of different policies to stop the flow of the Central Americans. They send military to the border. They adopt new regulations on how and when you can apply for asylum. They sort of flail around without a great deal of success. And then they settled on a policy that some refer to as remain in Mexico. The administration called it in kind of Orwellian terms, the Migrant Protection Protocols and MPP. Tell us about MPP, how it came into effect and what you think its impact has been. So you have a, f a few things happening at once as this policy known as remain in Mexico or MPP is, is actually becoming codified. First, you do have, and, and you allude to this in the administration's flailing around, you have the administration trying what it calls its zero tolerance policy, but which is in effect a family separation policy at the border, which is designed to deter migrant families from seeking asylum in the US, specifically by separating parents and children at the border and sending the harshest message possible. Inside this old warehouse in South Texas, the US Customs and Border Patrol is keeping hundreds of immigrant children in cages created by metal fence. The Democrats who run the House Oversight Panel titled the hearing Kids in Cages, Inhumane treatment at the border. That was an idea that had come up in past administrations as a theoretical, and no one was ever willing to do something so inhumane, whatever its potential policy effects were. But it's a mark of both how extreme the views were inside the Trump White House and how desperate people around the president were to lower the numbers, that they attempted that in the spring and into summer of 2018. That was a major policy that obviously, as we now know, blew up in the administration's face from a political standpoint. All kinds of outrage on a national level. The president had to announce basically that he was no longer going to separate families at the border. On the news hour tonight, changing course. President Trump signs an order ending immigrant family separations. 
Now, parents and children will be detained together. Through that whole kind of chaos, there was another policy that had been under discussion for some time that was at the time only known as Remain in Mexico, later it becomes the Migrant Protection Protocols. And the idea of that policy was essentially to outsource the issue of dealing with asylum seekers to Mexico. And so it gradually took shape uh, through the late summer, early fall of 2018, becomes announced in December of 2018, and then actually instituted in, in January of 2019. And the thrust of the policy is that for asylum seekers from Central America who want to lodge claims in the U.S., they arrive at the border, they file their asylum claim, and the U.S. government says, okay, while you're waiting for this claim to move through our badly backlogged immigration courts, we're going to send you back to Mexico, and you're just going to have to wait in northern Mexico indefinitely until your case finds some resolution in our courts. And they're on the whole, pretty exposed. I mean, these are these are families. These are generally desperate people, women and children, who are really at wit's end. They're trying to seek asylum in the U.S. They have no money. They have no work. They have nowhere to go. And they are easy targets for every manner of criminal enterprise in northern Mexico, from smugglers to local criminals to cartels. And so it's not long before we start to hear truly upsetting grisly accounts of all sorts of abuses, murders, rapes, kidnappings, extortion. And the U.S. view of this all is it's not our problem. We will give you a chance to make your claim in an immigration court. But for the time being, you have to wait in Mexico. By the end of 2019, you have essentially over 60,000 people who have been sent back to Mexico and forced to wait there. So in some ways, this was the second best policy that the administration really wanted. They really wanted to return asylum claimants to Mexico and have those claims heard in Mexico, right? And that's the agreement that they were able to reach with the Central American countries, Honduras, Guatemala, uh, and El Salvador, where the administration said, we are going to actually send you asylum seekers from other countries to adjudicate there. A few hundred have gone back, I think, under those agreements. That's right. I mean, the, the holy grail of restrictionists in the White House at that time was, as you say, a so-called safe third country deal with Mexico, where the U.S. just no longer had to deal with asylum claims at all. And so the, the premise of that sort of arrangement would be that any asylum seeker who crossed through Mexico to get to the U.S., which is to say everyone, if they're coming from Central America, would have to seek asylum in Mexico. But the Mexican government, which you know has been interesting in all of this, it's tried to resist the Trump administration's most forceful gestures but it's also in many ways between a rock and a hard place where Trump is concerned. But the safe third country deal was one position that the Mexican government, for all of its wavering, was just simply not willing to accept. But even the Remain in Mexico policy did require the tacit approval of Mexico because the U.S. was pushing people back into Mexican territory, non-Mexicans into Mexican territory. You have a left-wing, purportedly left-wing Mexican president, Lopez Obrador, but he goes along with this. How do we explain that? That's a really interesting drama. I think the most surprising thing for me reporting on this was learning actually how sanguine the Mexicans were about Remain in Mexico. You would have thought that they would put up more resistance to it. I think given what else was on the table, and this has very much been the Trump administration's sort of bargaining tactic in Central America, where they have 
total leverage over the people they're bargaining with or they're negotiating with. It, it was the lesser of two evils and the other, a safe third country deal with Mexico would have been absolutely over the top, despite being avowedly sort of left-leaning and expressing its its solidarity with, with regional migrants. And despite the fact that Lopez Obrador on the campaign trail made a big show of his magnanimity toward Central American migrants, you've really seen a kind of total reversal of that and all in the service of not angering the U.S. because of what the U.S. could potentially do to Mexico. So the numbers didn't drop precipitously immediately after this. The Trump administration wasn't fully satisfied and wanted to put more pressure on Mexico and said, we want these people to stop coming through Mexico at all where they can get to our southwest border. Trump then threatened high tariffs on Mexico to shut this flow down. And Mexico then responded even further. In June of 2019, you know, you, you at this point have all of these policies in effect. You've got the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP. You've got a whole host of other executive proclamations from the president, some of which are immediately held up in court, others not, that essentially make it all but impossible for asylum seekers to enter the U.S. And yet, through it all, Trump is so fixated on lowering the number of apprehensions at the southern border that he actually just comes out with a threat and says to Mexico, it's announced on Twitter in his characteristic fashion, says, we are going to impose tariffs on you unless you lower the number of people who reach the U.S. In other words, unless you increase your immigration enforcement within your own country. President Trump's threat to put tariffs on all goods from Mexico could push up prices for U.S. consumers. The surprise announcement last night is meant to pressure Mexico to stop the surge of undocumented immigrants into the U.S. I have to say, I, I thought Lopez Obrador was going to call Trump's bluff, in large part because I think the Republican caucus in the U.S. is divided. Uh, about what that sort of policy would mean for the U.S. economy. The idea of taxing uh, Mexican goods, there's a pretty strong constituency, a kind of chamber of commerce type constituency along the border that's very much scared by the idea of Trump upending trade with Mexico. So I kind of thought that if there was one issue on which the Lopez Obrador government could push back, it would be that. But of course, I'm also not the, I'm not the president of a country that is staring down the barrel of a gun. Lopez Obrador blinks and the Mexicans entirely in a defensive maneuver to keep Trump from imposing these tariffs seriously ramps up its enforcement, both of its southern border with Guatemala and then also its interior enforcement through the country. And so that coupled with all of these other policies that are making asylum so difficult to get and, and you have this bottleneck in northern Mexico where more and more people are getting stuck as they're waiting for claims to be heard in American immigration courts, that you just start to see a shift in, in what the composition of, of arrivals look like. Throughout the campaign and, and ever since, Trump has talked about building his big, beautiful wall on the southwest border. But I'm wondering if Trump, in fact, got his wall in a different way. He has enforcement at the border of Mexico. He's got MPP and a whole set of regulations in place that keep asylum seekers inside Mexico, those who get through Mexico. And he's got these agreements to send people back to Latin America. So in some ways, he's accomplished his wall. And guess what? Mexico's paying for it. That's right. That's absolutely right. Critics of the administration, myself included, are, are generally loath to give any sort of credit to the administration for the prosecution of its agenda, because on the whole, obviously, we're all pretty aghast at what this agenda looks like. But in terms of doing what the administration set out to do, this has been a, all of these policies, the sum total of all of these policies has been a success. But what's transpired 
uh, over the last three years has been a systematic dismantling of the asylum system. A systematic dismantling of the asylum system. That's The New Yorker's John Blitzer. So, Deb, John told us about the Trump administration's changes at the border. These new policies have affected the lives of tens of thousands of migrants, most of them from Central America. Alex, you talked to two people who we'll hear from in a minute. Tell us a little bit about their background before we hear their story in their words. Right. I spoke with two Guatemalan asylum seekers, Gaspar Cobo and Francisco Chavez. They're currently stuck at the border in Juarez, Mexico, across from El Paso, Texas. And they've been caught in the Remain in Mexico policy that John described. They asked for asylum in the United States in July 2019. A year later, they are still waiting to make their case in full to an immigration judge. We'll hear Gaspar first, and and we'll hear the word Ixiles, which refers to an indigenous people from the Ixil region of Guatemala. Here's their story as told through a translator. Really, it's not just us, and this story isn't just about right now. We know that, historically, the indigenous communities have been subject to persecution and dispossession of land. During the 80s, many Ixiles were forced to save their lives by seeking refuge in the mountains, while others had to leave the country. After the 80s, the Ixil region turned into the target of multinational corporations. We are a region that is rich in water resources and other minerals. So, since I was a child, my parents taught me to protect the land and defend human rights for the well-being of the public. I realized all of the bad things that were happening, and I had the opportunity to study and have a career. In 2010, I became an important leader in the community, at the municipal level, defending our territory. And when you become a defender of human rights and Mother Earth, and an environmental activist, automatically you become an enemy of the state, condemned to be persecuted and harassed by the government. That was one of the reasons why I had to leave. Because of the work that I was doing, I began to receive death threats. Francisco then told us his story. During my childhood, my family was persecuted for being part of Mayan communities, indigenous communities. They had to get rid of my parents, and I was one of the survivors of the massacres that the Guatemalan military committed against the population of the Ixil region. I was one of the survivors who have been fighting since we were kids to achieve justice in the Guatemalan national courts, and that's why they persecuted me and the other witnesses who testified in the court about what happened in the Ixil region. They then talked about their travel to the United States, we start with Francisco. It took us about 20 days, and what we experienced on the journey was abuse intended to prevent our travel. First of all, we had to find a group of people who were also traveling, and because of that, the authorities realized that we weren't from the area that we were passing through. And what's worse, even the people who guided the group abused us, taking advantage of their position. The authorities, like the local police, were robbing us all along the route. When there was a checkpoint, instead of doing their jobs, they took everything from us, even the little economic resources that we carried, and we didn't get anything back. Everything that we went through with them, we had to report to the public prosecutor here in Ciudad Juarez. Unfortunately, the authorities here intimidated us and rejected our report. Gaspar then picked up the story. Women and children were also suffering throughout the journey. The treatment from the guides was inhumane. For them it's a job, and the migrants need their service, but often the traffickers abuse them. 
They've really abused, for example, the young women. The children suffered too. Many got sick and cried out of hunger and thirst, since sometimes we went without food or water. Francisco and Gaspar were stopped at the U.S. border. They spent two days in detention and were questioned by the Border Patrol, and then told to wait in Ciudad Juarez. Here's what happened next. After they returned us, we were given another date, our first chance to stand before a judge. We were to return a few months later. So the date arrived, and we went again with our lawyer. We went to the bridge, and that time we didn't stay there in the detention center, but we went before a judge. The judge only asked us if we had decided to begin the asylum application process and if the lawyer would accompany us. We were there for about 10 minutes before they left us locked up. And the next day, they returned us to do the interview, but once more we were rejected and they sent us to Juarez. And there was also a third appointment with the judge to give us the date for the final appearance. But that time, the judge wasn't there and they simply sent us back. We don't have any idea when they'll give us an answer, or if they will accept us or not. Because we understand that the policy that the United States government is implementing is to close the doors for people who are seeking protection, who are seeking asylum. Many say that some migrants leave their communities because of poverty and others leave because of persecution. But in reality, it is all one singular problem that has united us. There is no government policy that is supporting the population, and unfortunately, many people cannot survive there. We have endured because there is a network that supports us, that has lent us a hand, that has been very generous with us, and that is in solidarity with our work, and it's thanks to that help that we've made it this far. But we know and have seen many people who had given up hope and have returned to their lands. They will confront once more the situation of extreme poverty and the conditions of their countries right now. That was Gaspar Cobo and Francisco Chavez, two Guatemalan asylum seekers who are currently in Juarez, Mexico. Okay, so we've been talking in this episode about the Trump administration's actions to stop the arrival of asylum seekers. And we heard from John Blitzer. He outlined those actions from the very start of the Trump era. Alex, you recorded your interview with John Blitzer just before COVID-19 hit. And the situation at the border has changed dramatically since then. You called him back to update the story. John, we spoke a, a few months ago uh, and you described at, at length the actions that have been taken at the southwest border to prevent the arrival of asylum seekers. Uh, since that time, we've seen the arrival uh, of the COVID pandemic, and I think we need to factor that in now to our discussions of the border. All of the things that we observed over the last couple of years with alarm as the border seemed to progressively be sealed up more and more by the Trump administration has now gone into hyperdrive. And and all of the things we were most afraid of have now come to pass with COVID, that the administration claiming broad powers to be acting in the interests of American public health have actually literally sealed the border uh, and have claimed powers to continue to keep the border sealed indefinitely. Immigration streams have been declining pretty rapidly. Uh, and of course, the, the sort of definitive piece in all of this is the fact that now the U.S. is simply turning away anyone who reaches, reaches the southern border. I mean, the idea of someone seeking asylum now at the southern border is actually off the table. Uh, and I, I think as a result, the numbers, I mean, who knows what the numbers would even look like conceivably. Um, but they've 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 dropped just astonishingly. 
John, can you talk specifically about what the administration has put in place now uh, because of the COVID pandemic? The first and most obvious thing is the U.S. government citing guidance from the Centers for Disease, the Center for Disease Control has basically said, we are not allowing anyone to enter through the southern border. Um, and initially, they said that that authority would exist for one month and it would be renewed uh, or, or reevaluated after one month. And to no one's surprise, they have renewed that authority. And so now for a few months, the border has been completely sealed. Now, anytime someone shows up at the southern border, they are deportation isn't even really the word for it. It's more, it's more like expulsion. They're immediately turning people around. Uh, and that includes, in a very significant category of cases, unaccompanied minors who, for you know decades now, uh, have in, enjoyed sort of a special status, a special battery of protective measures in, in U.S. law, because they are the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable. And I know from reporting that at the highest levels of DHS and at the White House, the fact that unaccompanied children were able to still enter the U.S. despite all of the measures the Trump administration had put in place to block asylum seekers was a source of tremendous frustration. And so now, under the current circumstances, with the White House claiming these broad powers to, to, to seal the border in the name of public health, um, even unaccompanied minors are being turned around. And and you know the latest figures to that effect are some 900 unaccompanied minors have basically been deported uh, summarily without having been given a chance to appeal cases or to lodge proper asylum claims. And so you're basically seeing the wish list that the Trump administration had for uh, asylum policy at the border now being fully executed because the things that it couldn't get past Congress before or couldn't get past uh, federal courts before, it can now kind of smuggle into existence uh, through these broad public health powers that the White House has been invoking. Under the Remain in Mexico policy, thousands of migrants were pushed back to Mexico and told to present their asylum claim later in the U.S. Those dates had been put off. But what you're saying about the COVID orders is uh, people now expelled under the COVID orders will not even have the opportunity to apply for asylum that the people waiting in Mexico were given the ability to do. Is that right? One of the strongest arguments the administration could make in defense of the Remain in Mexico policy was that at the very least, despite all of the obstacles that the government erected to make it harder for people to apply for asylum, um, in theory, people were still given the chance to apply for asylum. Sure, they might have to wait in Mexico. Sure, the circumstances in Mexico might be incredibly dangerous. Um, sure, it was untenable to essentially force someone to shuttle back and forth over the border over a period of months and months to, to try to see their asylum claim through. But still, the administration could at least claim, in theory, that the, the right uh, that individuals fleeing persecution had to seek asylum in the U.S. remained in some way enshrined in U.S. policy, even if it was just in this kind of superficial kind of lip service sort of way. And and now not even that pretext exists. And so it is a pretty naked overhaul of U.S. immigration policy. We've talked about a, a lot of policies that the Trump administration adopted at the border, changes to asylum procedures and uh, substantive rules for being granted asylum and the Remain in Mexico policy, the third country agreements. The COVID regulations really deliver the coup de grace, don't they? That's absolutely right. For this White House, that's the silver bullet. 
We've recently spoken with Gaspar and Francisco, who have been stuck in Mexico. Their asylum hearing has now been rescheduled for the end of August. And Alex, here's an update on the asylum camps in Mexico and Matamoros. At the end of June, three asylum seekers tested positive for the coronavirus. That's it for this episode of Entry Denied. We'd like to thank Michael Cusick and Peter Beiser for production assistance. Sahil Ansari is our producer and engineer, and our music is composed by Eli Elenikov. Check out our show notes on EntryDeniedPodcast.com, and you'll find resources there to help you go even deeper into some of these issues. And please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week.